how to have more health than disease. No, no congregation gets perfectly healthy. The reason for that is we all belong to one. But we can show a congregation how there can be far more health than disease. And so when I talk to churches, I really don't talk to them about church growth. I really talk to them about church health. Now, the reason, however, that many churches, many congregations, and I don't care whether they're ego churches or churches in our denomination, I've worked with about 40 different denominations. It doesn't, it's not related to denomination. It's not related to location. It's not related to geography. The reason there's often more disease than health is that the older I've gotten, the more I realize that health is a choice. And the older you get, the more difficult the choices. So when I turned 50, my wife said to me, you will go every year for an annual checkup. Now that was not a choice. I do marriage counseling in 15 seconds. Just do what she says. Okay. Three times a week I holler into the kitchen, I'm sorry, I don't know what I've done, but tell me what it is, and I promise you I will never do it again. So I go for my checkup, and about the third year, the doctor looks at me and he says, Paul, you're that age now where we need to check your colon. I said, Doc, it's just about right here. Get a Sharpie, put a big check mark, and check my colon. He said, we don't do it that way. And when he explained how they did it, I was not highly enthused. Now, I didn't have to get my colon checked. That's a choice, unless my wife found out. But, you know, that's a choice. But I did it. Well, the second time they did it, he said, we have found polyps. We have to do your entire colon. I said, God, can't we just settle for a semicolon? No, he said, it doesn't work that way. Again, that was a choice. I didn't have to do it. But then the next time, he said, Paul, the polyps, not only did we remove them, but none have come back. You don't have to do it for five years. But what happens, whether it's in church, in business, in our families, we often are unwilling to make the tough decisions. We know they need to be made. Many of us can articulate what those decisions are, but we aren't willing to make the tough decisions. And as a result of that, our congregations become less healthy and less healthy. They begin to decline. They begin to plateau, whatever. Now, by the way, since I talk to churches about church health, I hope I want to be very clear that when I talk about church growth, I am not talking about rearranging sheep. I'm not talking about people leaving other congregations to go to your congregation. In fact, when we got to our churches in 1997, the good news was our churches were so bad other Christians knew not to visit them. And so if our churches were going to grow, they had to grow by making new disciples for Jesus Christ. And so I'm assuming, when I look at a congregation, that if that congregation is not growing, and particularly if they're not growing by reproductive multiplication growth of new people becoming disciples for Jesus Christ, uh, then that church has more disease than health. The good news is, and we're going to talk about that today, 
is we do can show churches, and that's what's happened in these churches in western Pennsylvania. That's what's happened in these churches of 20 and 70 or 150. They have begun to make some of the difficult decisions they know they need to make. And they made them, and we gave them the help as they did those things. And as health came, the church began to grow. So that's the first assumption. The second assumption is that God created the church primarily to accomplish the mission of making disciples. In Matthew 16, Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. And I believe it's in the next line he tells us why. So the gates of hell will not win. That's why he built the church. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build my church so we can gather on Sunday for wonderful worship. I'm going to build my church so we can gather on Sunday to hear the word of God preached and taught well. I'm going to build my church so we can gather on Sunday and see all of our friends. By the way, I have done formal consultations now with over 600 congregations. And I have yet to meet the second friendliest church in town. Every church I meet is the friendliest church in town. Okay. Now, as I tell people, if friendliness grew churches, our churches ought to be booming. But friendliness doesn't grow churches. And part of the reason for that is when people, guests, come to your church, you don't get credit for being friendly. You get demerits if you're not friendly. But you don't get credit for being friendly. It's like when my son was five. He said, Dad, can I have an allowance for brushing my teeth? I said, no. That's just something you do. You know, you're supposed to. So people expect you to be free. But Jesus, now, I believe worship is very important. I believe the preaching and teaching of the word is fundamental and crucial. I believe fellowship is important. But that's not why Jesus built the church. Jesus built the church, I believe, basically to depopulate Satan's zip code. And I believe the reason why the church of Jesus Christ has such horrible statistics in the U.S., and I don't care what denomination you talk about, is because we have focused more on the believer than we have on the person who is not yet a believer. And so the way we talk about that in churches is this. If we talk about the Great Commission as a commission from Jesus, last thing he said, in one way or another it's touched upon in all four of the Gospels, it was not the Great Suggestion. Okay. I mean, there's only one verb. It's in the imperative in Matthew, and that's make disciples, which we, for the most part, have stopped doing. And so we have said to churches, your biggest problem, is that you were disobedient to the most fundamental thing Jesus said about the church. Now, I believe that is the church's biggest problem. I also believe it is the easiest one to address. So one of the things we have done, and perhaps uh, with one exception, because they had already gone through this before we got there, we have done in every church, as we've said, you need to take a Sunday morning, a Sunday morning worship service, which is prime time, and demonstrate that this is a prime issue. 
and you spend your time in prayers of confession and repentance, asking God to forgive you for not doing the main thing. And I believe when I work with the church, this is the first step of health. It's recognizing that our problem is not in our building, it's not in our location, it's not in who the pastor is, it's not in who the session is, it's not in all those things, even though sometimes those may contribute to issues. The biggest problem is we have lost sight of what's happening. Now, I'm going to say something that's kind of been a new revelation to me in the last three or four months, even though I work with this stuff all the time. I've come to realize that we talk about churches being missional. And I've come to realize that every church is missional in the sense that it does mission. <coughs> now, I think often we do the wrong mission. The wrong mission is we focus on the believer at the expense of the unbeliever. But every church does mission. You, when you support missionaries, you're doing mission. When you have a food bank, you're doing mission. When you're working in some kind of a justice issue, you're doing mission. <coughs> But I'm convinced that most churches in most denominations are not missional. In the sense that everything the church does, in one way or another, focuses on the mission. So, if the mission, which to put it in now eco terms, is to produce flourishing churches, and if you look at the theology of your denomination, it's the Great Commission. That's what eco says. Most churches, whether it's ego churches or other churches that might be evangelical, may say that's their mission, but they're not missional about it. And the way I would illustrate that is, every year when I've come to the national gathering for ego, I have been impressed with the stories I have heard of what many of your congregations have had to do to sever your former denominational affiliation and then to join ECO. Mm -hmm. And we've heard stories of how for a year, two years, sometimes three years, almost every meeting, meetings of session, meetings of the congregation, staff meetings are focused on how do we do this? How do we, what happens with this? How are we going to do this? It's often been done at great sacrifice. Sacrifice of facilities, sacrifices of buildings, sacrifices of people. In fact, it's interesting to me that when I work with ego churches and they don't want to see anybody leave, the churches have been willing to say, if people leave because we leave our former denomination and we join ego, then they leave. And for those two or three years, your congregations functioned with a mission. And everything you did for the most part, your preaching, your discussions, your prayers, your giving, your risks, your sacrifices, was about the mission. And what we're trying to say to congregations, first of all, the fact that you did that, I think, is awesome. I worked in a mainline Protestant denomination, and I know how sick they are. So I understand that. What I'm just looking to say is it possible to find churches that will act the same way when it comes to the Great Commission. That we're willing to risk 
whether it's our buildings, whether it's our property, whether it's whatever, our money, whatever it is, are we willing to risk? Because to me, here's what I've found. In the United States, when churches begin to focus that way in regard to how they act as a local congregation, it's amazing how God begins to send unbelievers and how those unbelievers begin to become disciples of Jesus Christ and how the churches begin to grow. And so you heard just some of the stories that we're hearing coming out of the cohorts. Why are so many people proportionately, now they're not big numbers, but why are so many people proportionately coming disciples because these churches have said, we've got to get back to where everything we do with some degree of intentionality focuses on doing the mission of the Great Commission. And I've seen this happen in denomination after denomination after denomination. This year, 2018, I was in Canada. Now you think the United States is pagan. Canada is really pagan. They're much nicer to us than we are to them. I understand that, but they're still pagan. The, the estimation is that no more than 10% of the population across the nation is evangelical in any way, sense, or another. And we were working with a denomination, and the uh, denomination had a, a, what, probably about, I don't know, 130, 150 churches in their district. And I went up there to train the leaders in how to do what we do call cohorts. The leaders had come at the end, two years ago, and at the end of that year, in their entire district, they called, instead of calling it a, a, a presbytery or a synod, they called it a district, the entire district. Net growth, in all of their churches, all of their churches, net growth were 50 people. The first year of relationships with uh, the leaders being there, at the end of 2017, the net growth was 150 people. In 2018, they began to do the whole cohort process, which is a process to get churches to focus again on the Great Commission. And in December, I'm on the phone with one of the men from, from it's in Alberta, this, this denomination. He said, Paul, we just added up, and this year our churches have gained over 2,500 people with what God is doing because the churches are again focusing on the Great Commission. So this assumption to me is the most fundamental of all the assumptions. The third assumption is that the gospel message never changes, but the church must change constantly. For 21 centuries, the only way women and men have ever gotten to God is through Jesus Christ. That has never changed and it will never change. But the church must change constantly. Why? Because the culture is constantly changing. It struck me the, the, in the session, uh, and I don't know what you saw, but I was in the sanctuary when uh, the pastor of this church got up and held up the card of uh, the revival service in 1887, you know. And, uh, you know, in those days, in the, that day and age, you could pass out a, a card like that, and, and people would actually show up at that point. But the culture is constantly changing. And so, since the culture is constantly changing, the church's job is to take the unchangeable gospel to an ever-changing culture. Okay? Now, you know, I'll be 75 next month. And when our churches began to turn around, because we were in California, where 
you know, as you know, everything's legal, although Colorado's not far behind anymore. Uh, they began to change their worship style and change the kind of music they did. Now, I must tell you, because I'm 75, most of our churches that are really grown, I don't like their music. But here's what I tell them. If I like it, you're in deep trouble. Well, I'm old. Okay. And I can get my music 24-7. I don't need it at church. Now, you know, I was in the, the sanctuary. I went there because I figured that would be age-appropriate music for me. And it was. I enjoyed the worship at that point. But what we need to understand is the gospel never changes. But the church must change constantly. What we sold our churches when we got there in 1997 was this. If 1955 comes back, you're ready. <laughs> Some of our churches still had green shag carpet. Old couches don't die, they crawl away to you <laughs> And so part of our job, and this has been true in western Pennsylvania, I, I keep telling them up there that it's like Alabama without the accent. That's what's going to happen. to say, can we at least get the churches to 2000? Okay, I mean, it's now 2019, but if we can at least get the churches, we're making some steps. And so the assumption is the reason we talk about change is not to make people uncomfortable, even though many times the changes are uncomfortable. But here's what I found. When the mission becomes reaching people who don't know Jesus, there's a reason for the change. And there's stand the change. And I have been amazed at the changes that churches have been willing to make because of that. So those are the three assumptions that I work on as I work with the congregation. This is what we're teaching the cohorts as we work with the pastors and congregations. Now, the question then comes, all right, Paul, if those are the assumptions, I'm here and I'm our church, I don't care whether we have 50, 150, 350, we're in a plateau, we're in decline, what do we do about it? How do we attack that? And so one of the things that we talk to churches about are life cycles. Now, every living thing has a life cycle. Uh... Now, I only get one. In fact, as I look around this room today, I realize that some of you are joining me on that final glide path. And I have far more years behind me than I do ahead of me. Now, one day, this life cycle will get changed. It's called resurrection. But God's not doing that now. Not even for Pentecostals. But he's going to do it one day. The good news is that churches can have multiple life cycles. And most churches that I work with, because most churches in the United States are on plateau or decline, regardless of size. And, you know, I, 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 Christians like this, well, we have a church of 500, we're healthy. Not if you're in plateau or decline, you're not healthy. Or not if you're growing by transfer growth, from my perspective, you're not healthy. You're just masking the stuff that's there. But it is possible for a church to have multiple life cycles. 
when I worked with the First Baptist Church of San Francisco, First Baptist San Francisco was started in 1849. They are true 49ers. <laughs> and uh, that church has now existed, you know, for just a long time. If you'd go to church there in 1943, you would have sat in a Sunday morning worship service with a thousand people. Now, many of those people were going to get on ships and sail to the South Pacific and fight World War II. But every Sunday, there's a thousand people. If you go to church there in the end of the 1950s, you would have sat in church on a Sunday morning with 150 people. If you'd been in church there in the late 60s, early 70s, you would have sat in church with six or 700 people. It was the Jesus movement. And the ferment in the culture was going on in the church. I mean, Hayden Asbury, for those of you old enough to remember that address, is not that far from First Baptist Church San Francisco. Now, when I did a weekend consultation with them in 1998, it was 170 old white people. There's a reason why I say it that way. Every Sunday, they come into the community, because most of them now live in the suburbs. They don't live in San Francisco anymore. They come in, open the building, worship God, lock the building, fill the moat with alligators so nobody would touch the building, and go back out to the suburbs. Five years later, on a Sunday morning, you would have sat in church with 500 people. Every third person was Asian. The average age was 32. And 60% of the church population was single, which reflects the kind of people who actually live in San Francisco. So if you look at this church that had gone from 1849 now to 2019, you realize there have been 12, 13, 14 congregations that have existed under the name of First Baptist Church of San Francisco. And they have grown up, matured, and begun to die. They've grown up, matured, and begun to die. Grown up, matured, and begun to die. Now, there is no guarantee, however, that God promises a church a new life cycle. All the New Testament churches are dead. Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, which is a blessing. Famous seven last words of any church are, we have never done it that way before. Can you imagine how a 2,000-year-old church would act? The Apostle Paul didn't need electricity. Why do we have to get connected? <laughs> if you look at church history, God's M.O. is to constantly bring life out of death. And one of the ways that I believe God is doing that today is he is helping churches who are on the downside of their life cycle find new life cycles. But here's the difference between today, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. I could say that to a church when I started working with churches, and they'd say, yeah, Paul, but we've always gone through these down times, and we'll come back. That is no longer true today. When most churches hit the down cycle and get to the point where they don't have enough resources to revive, they know don't hang in there. They die. Why? Because the culture has changed dramatically. And churches that think we've been here for 100 years, 150 years, 175 years, that's why today there are about half the number of churches 
in the United States that were here 50 years ago because these churches are no longer able to do it because the culture has changed so dramatically. So what we are saying to a church is we will help you determine where you are on your life cycle. And if you are on the down side of your life cycle, we will help you start a new life cycle. Now, if you will notice on that slide, the life cycle slide, there are 10 categories. There are five on the upside going from birth to adulthood, and there are five on the downside going from maturity to death. Now, you will notice under that life cycle chart, there are four terms uh, with four, four letters, V for vision, R for relationships, N for ministry, and S for structure. And if you look at the 10 categories, you will notice that on the other side of the line, there are those four letters, the V, the R, the M, and the S. Now, if the letter is capitalized, it is a strength in the church. If the letter is in lower case, it's not a strength in the church. And you will note that on the upside of the life cycle, the one letter that is capitalized every time is vision, which again is why what, what, what Dana did this today in terms of here and where Eco is, is so crucial, because that which drives the church is vision. If you will look at the downside of the life cycle, you will notice that the letter that is always in lower case is the V, and normally the letter that is in the upper case is the S for structure. So let that make some sense. Look at the next slide with the automobile. The automobile going up the life cycle represents a congregation that is growing. And you will notice that the V for vision is always behind the steering wheel driving the car. Now, I think there is a theological reason for that. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says that there are three big ideas in Scripture, faith, love, and hope. He says of those three, love is most important. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. But here's what we have learned. People can live without love. It makes life difficult, but they can't. People can live life without faith. It makes life complicated, but they can't. But most people cannot live without hope. Studies have shown, as they interviewed those people that had been in those Nazi concentration camps in World War II, Obviously, the prisoners who were killed had no choice in what happened to them. But those other prisoners who made up the infrastructure of the camp, they learned that many times they would give up hope. They'd escape knowing that they would get shot, which was the way they took their life, or they would throw themselves on the electrified fence. But those who made it to the end, almost everyone they interviewed still had a dream of a book they wanted to write, a concert they needed to play, a grandchild they had never seen, but they wanted to hug that grandchild at least once. And it was hope that kept them going. I've worked with churches that believed, if you build it, they will come. And they built it, and guess what? People didn't come. I've been in churches that 
you know, you, you almost have to have a trail of breadcrumbs to find. You know, the, I work with some denominations and I tell them, I, I said, you invariably build a church in the worst place in town to locate. And yet I've seen many of those churches grow. Because it's not about location, although location helps. It's about hope. It's about vision. In fact, we have discovered that when a church is known for hope, it grows. When a church, excuse me, when a community knows the church as a place of hope, it really grows. In the last few years, I've been working with a pastor who leads a congregation that is right on the edge of the downtown area of Salem, Oregon. Now, you know, you think California is weird. Western Oregon is worse. Okay. And if there's any place that's not only way out there, but probably almost anti-faith, anti-religion, anti-whatever, it's Western Oregon. He's been there for about 10 years, and the church has doubled in size from 700 to 1,400 because their focus is doing the Great Commission. Their vision is to change the center of downtown Salem. In fact, the pastor and his wife, every Friday, they've been doing this for 10 years when they're at home, not on vacation. He said, that's our date lunch. We go out for a date for lunch. But he said, before we go for a date, we walk one block of every, in downtown Salem, all the businesses in downtown Salem. He says, I walk into a store, and uh, I know the odds are the person there doesn't go to church. So I said to him, uh, hi, I'm Pastor So-and-so, uh, do you go to church? And he said, no. And his response is, good. I'm now your pastor, here's my card. <laughs> and then he props calling. Goes the next door, do you go to church? No. Good. I'm now your pastor, here's my card. He said, Paul, we've been doing this so much that I sometimes walk in there two, three years later and say, hi, Pastor, how you doing? <laughs> no, he said, I know they're not going to come to church next week. He said, it's amazing. When their kids are dealing with drugs issues or divorce issues or whatever, it's amazing how they call us and we have a chance to reach them. I was up there two years ago. They have renamed their, they have a mission, still a missions conference, but they renamed it Priority One, their Priority One conference because they're making the number one priority. And one year they focus on what's going on in Oregon and Salem, and the next year what's going on overseas. And we were there for that weekend where they were focusing on what was going on in Oregon. And on Sunday night, I left Sunday afternoon, but on Sunday night, a thousand people came back to church and sat there to listen to the mayor, the uh, superintendent of schools, the district superintendent, and one other civic official talk about how the church could minister to the needs of the community. When they got done, the mayor said to the pastor, he said, I can't believe a thousand people showed up to hear me talk. They now have, uh, about three years ago, it's not a wealthy church, they bought a block next to theirs on the edge of the downtown area. And they have started five LLCs. Three of them are now going. The first LLC... Uh, is kind of a jiffy loop kind of business, you know, where you bring your cars in and get the oil chains and all that kind of stuff. But to work in the jiffy loop business, you have to have just gotten out of prison and be on parole. And they have apartments for them, they have mentors, and many of these men, these are all men, they're coming to Christ. 
because of the relationship with the church. Uh, the second place they opened was a um, uh, cafe, coffee house. Apparently, the women's prisons in Oregon have a barista training. He said, we hired three baristas right out of prison. They're on parole. I said, let me guess. Did they have any part of their skin that was not a different color? <laughs> he said, oh, no. He said, it's gorgeous. They got metal and color. He says, it's awesome. And, but that's so they're doing with the women what they're doing with the men. They just started a lunch program where you have lunch carts. There's one couple who come from the church. They're the believers. They have lunch carts. But all the other lunch carts, they're unbelievers. They're working with the Vietnamese family that's trying to get established. The next business they're going to open is going to be a car wash. And in order to be able to hire at the car wash, you have to be diagnosed with autism. Pastor said to me, all this is already. He said, you would not believe the money that is being thrown at us from the city and the county and the state because we're offering hope for what they cannot do. When a church is known for hope, it grows. Which then puts the R in the front passenger seat. Relationships. People are attracted to vision. We live in a day and age where people want to be a part of something bigger than them. And if there's one way we can relate to the younger generations, every one of them is interested in what's a cause. What's a cause? We can do this. It's almost far impossible to walk down the street, to go through a mall without somebody stopping you with a donation for a cause. To do 5K walks to whatever. In fact, one of the ego churches we worked with uh, had the schools across the street, and they had a day. They, had, they also had a, a preschool, and uh, they had this whole cause of what they were walking for, and they even had the parents of the preschool parents uh, and their friends, most of them don't go to church, uh, they were measuring how many steps three-year-olds could take around the track. They were raising money for how much they contributed, and people were giving because it's a call. They had a whole bunch of people on their campus that day because... People want to be a part of something that's bigger than them. So people come when there's hope, which then means that the M for ministries and the S for structure, how you're organized, are in the back seat always trying to catch up. Because as you're growing, as you have more people, as you have more people showing up on your campus doing different ministries, <coughs> more and more people, how are you organized for that? And that reflects what's going on in a church that is growing. Now, sad to say, most of the congregations I work with are on the next slide, which is the car that is going down the life cycle. You will notice that vision is in the back seat. In fact, that's really when a, that's really when a, car, a church, a business, whatever, moves from going up the life cycle to down is when vision gets lost. And when vision gets lost, people stop coming. And so the V and the R are in the back seat. And then the M for ministry is up in the passenger seat navigating. And churches become what I call Avis churches. You're familiar with Avis. Hertz is number one. Avis is number two. So what's their slogan? We try harder. If we can just do Sunday school better. If we can just do small groups better. Pastor, if you just preach better. If we can just do uh, worship better. If you just do it better, people would come, not realizing that the issue is about hope and it's about vision. And then the S for structure 
is behind the steering wheel. And one of the biggest problems I work with, and I don't care what the denomination is, it's usually the structure where, uh, you know, I, our churches, our churches were congregational, but they, you know, they had boards of 15, they had they each board member represented a committee, they would have 15 committees, and and uh, they were constantly meeting. In fact, I told them they had a bureaucracy that made the California Motor Vehicle Department proud. I said, you act as though Jesus said, I am come that you might meet. Because all you do is meet. Okay? And our churches were willing to attack this whole bureaucratic issue because it was about mission at that point. So, when we work with the congregation, we help them understand where they are on the life cycle. And most congregations are in the automobile that's on the downside of the life cycle. And so what I say to them is, we are here, and we usually do this within a weekend, at least to share what it is, we are here to show you how to start a new life cycle. So, the last four slides are on each one of those terms, on vision, relationships, ministries, and structure. So let me talk first of all about vision. Now, the way I talk about vision, by the way, I, you know, I, I just, I, 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 I was delighted when knowing I come here, I was going to hear Will Mancini and, and, and what's there at that point. So I resonate with everything he says. I'm just trying to say, how can I maybe communicate it in a way that, that kind of maybe sometimes helps people get to it at that point. So that's all I'm trying to do. So for me, mission is purpose. What's your purpose? Why do you exist? So, we said to churches, what's your mission? And uh, I've suggested that most churches have one of three missions. Most congregations I work with, again, I don't care what denomination, most congregations I work with, the priority of the church is primarily for the people who are there already. In fact, one of the things I'll say is, let's suppose I stand in front of your church on a Sunday morning, and I say to the congregation, will you call out all the ministries of your church? What are all the things you do? We preach, we pray, we sing, we eat, we small groups, we have children, we have youth, etc. And I write as fast as I can. Now, in many churches, because we're evangelical, we feel guilt. So at Christmas time, we'll feed people. We'll give gifts. We do that. We'll pay missionaries, by the way, to go do the Great Commission. We're willing to hire spiritual hit people. Okay. Nothing wrong with missionaries. I'm glad for missionaries. Don't ask us to do it. We'll pay somebody else to do it at that point. And then I look at the congregation and I say, all right, most of the stuff up here, when you think of all the ministries of your church, in fact, I could do a church consultation by looking at a church's budget. Because how you spend your money reflects where your heart is. Most of everything that's in the budget, most of all the ministry we do, is for us. And when we got to our churches, to these 50, 60 people where it used to be a church of five or 600, it didn't, wasn't hard to convince them. The music they sang was because they liked it. The reason they had Sunday school classes is because they liked it. The reason they did this was because they liked it. The reason if they if they had any children because they had children or grandchildren, they liked it. And so we said to them, 
uh, how's that working for you? And the answer is, well, it's not working well. So they said, is there another mission? If the mission for us is primarily work doing most of the stuff for us and that's not working, is there another mission? I said, yeah. And so I would talk to them about the phenomena that really actually began with uh, Schuller, but then was uh, really became popular with Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, which was the secret church. If you think about the secret church, the secret church was not created for the believers. The secret church was created for those who weren't believers yet. And so when you go hear Rick Warren talk, Rick Warren says, well, we began, we said to our launch team, do not invite anybody to the church who already goes to church. Because we're not for them. And we all know what's happened at Saddleback in churches like that. Now, I knew that when I said that to the people in our churches, they would say, if that's what it takes, I'm not sure I'm open to that. So I talked to them about a very famous American that anyone under 40 does not know who it is. Uh, it's amazing how bad our education is, but as soon as I mention his name, all of you over 40 will know who he is. And most people under 40, at least under 35, will not know who this person is. Monty Hall. Remember Monty Hall? Let's make a deal. Okay. Let's make a deal. They had three doors. Door number one, door number two, door number three. So I say the church, door number one is uh, we run the church for us and our people. Our old music, we realize, Paul, that's not working. If, if we don't do anything, we're eventually going to die. Door number two, we run the church not for us, but we run the church for the people who aren't here yet. And most of them said, we're not sure if we can go there. And so they looked at me and said, Paul, is there door number three? And I said, yes. Here's door number three. We will do both. We will run the church for us, and we will run the church for the people who aren't here yet. Now, however, at that point I said to our churches, if that's where you're going to land, and that's where most of our churches landed, in, in five years we went from 37 growing churches to over 150 growing churches. And all, only about two or three went door number two. All the rest of them went door number three. So I said, if you're going to go door number three, you've got to ask two questions. Here's the first question. Who gets priority? If we get priority, we go back to door number one. If the unbeliever gets priority, God often shows up and things begin to happen. And that's where most of our churches landed. That was the first question. The second question was, well, how do we do this? How do we make this happen? In fact, when we started in 1997, because I was dealing, you know, churches I worked with were American Baptists, and you know, the difference between Presbyterians and Baptists is about two years of high school, so I just... <laughs> Since I was working with Baptists, uh, I, I had to simplify it. So we did, I said, I didn't want you to write a mission statement. 
I said, you just got to think of it like your navel. You either got innings or outs. Your church for the last 50, 60 years, you've been inward. Everything's for you. I want you in a board meeting to vote to be outward. And you don't have to use word alley, but say, we're actually going to be outward at that point. And we actually had churches that said, all right, we're going to be outward. Okay, what's that look like? So one of the things we have done with the church, and we still do this, is we take every ministry in the church, every ministry in the church, worship team, choir if they had it, we, we still have choirs, choir if they have them, small groups, session, deacons, adult Sunday school classes, children's ministry, youth, every ministry of the church, and we actually have the church do an audit. And here's what they're auditing. What will this church do at least three times a year to be actively engaged in the Great Commission? Now, if they say, we're not going to do anything, then you cancel the ministry. Why? Why do it? Because it doesn't help you figure mission. That's a problem in our church. Most of our churches are doing everything but the mission. Most of our ministries are doing everything but the mission. Okay. Now, if you do it, then uh, we will help you, resource you in any way we can. So I need to give you an illustration. A couple of illustrations. I was working with a church, oh, it's been about five years ago now, and uh, they said, we want to be out. The church was plateaued at 300. At in fact, it had declined, really, over, over the last decade. But it was down to about 300. And they said, we want to. We said, all right, you've got to audit every ministry. So they began to work through every ministry. They got to the women's ministry. When they got to the women's ministry, they realized that the women did 10 things a year, one every month, and they would take two months off in the summer. And then when they examined that ministry, every time they did something, 50 to 70 women would show up. Which in most churches, people say, oh, that's a great ministry. Then they examined, who are the 50 to 70 women who were showing up? And they realized that all the women who showed up, every time the women's ministry met, were either women from that church or women from other churches in the community. So the women's ministry was not helping make new disciples for Jesus. So, the board which they had, they called themselves elders, but it was not a Presbyterian church, but the board went to the women and said, well, what are you going to do? They said, we've thought about that. We want to be part of the mission. We want to see people come to Jesus. So here's what we've decided to do. Three times a year, once in the fall, once in the winter, once in the spring, our event will be a banquet. In fact, we're going to put on the best spread that we have to, even if we have to cater it. This is not going to be your typical pot luck with the lime jello with a pear in the bottom and the green bean casserole. <laughs> and the deviled eggs that pastors never get because we have to stand in the back of the line. Not that I'm angry about that. We're going to cater. And we're going to sell tickets. Now, the purpose of the tickets is not to cover the cost of the banquet because the tickets will be quite inexpensive. The purpose of the tickets is that you can't get into the banquet without a ticket. 
However, when you go to the three or four women who are selling tickets for the banquet, you need to know that you cannot buy one ticket. You must buy two tickets. And you must give them the name of the unchurched woman you've come invited to come with you to the banquet. Because when we're done eating, we're going to ask a lady in our church or a guest speaker to come in and talk about her faith relationship with Jesus Christ. And maybe even invite these women to follow Jesus Christ just as she has. So what the women were saying was seven times a year the ministry is for us. Three times a year the ministry is not for us. It's to help us do the mission. I was in a Presbyterian church a while back and the church had at one time had been 500. When I was there it was down to about 60 people. Average age was in the 70s. In fact they could no longer afford their facilities. They said, do you think we can grow again? I said, if you want to get serious about the mission of Jesus, I think God will do something. So he said, okay. I said, well, you got to do the audit. Well, they still had two adult Sunday school classes left. So when they audited the first Sunday school class, they realized it had been meeting for about 80 years. <laughs> when it started, it had been called the young marriage class. <laughs> it had about 60, 70 people in it. When they did the audit, there were 10 people in there ages 75 to 85. Attrition had occurred. And they went to these older people, and they said, you know, you haven't made any new disciples for Jesus in years. And it was interesting, these older people said, but we want to be part of the mission. So they said, here's what we're going to do. As every ministry in the church is networking with unbelievers, Every week, if you will give us names of people that, as far as you can tell, do not know Jesus, we will take prime time in our class, and we will pray that the Spirit of God will convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that God will bring them to himself. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but many of our prayers in church are to keep people out of heaven. We keep asking God to heal them. And there's nothing wrong with that. that those are good prayers. But where in church do you regularly, intentionally pray for people who don't know Jesus? And so what we said to these churches is this. You've got to determine what's your mission. The same thing that we talked about in this last session. And we believe that it somehow has to be centered around the commission God, through Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, gave to his church to make more disciples for Jesus Christ. So you always start with mission. And then you go to vision. That's under the vague. And the vision is, what does it look like? And so we help churches work through the vision. And basically, I say to churches, I want to see two numbers. Two numbers. And they say, what are those numbers? I said, well, here's the first number. In the next five years, if you do the mission, how many people do you want to trust God for? They become brand new disciples of Jesus through the life of your church. Because if you begin to set that goal, it's a faith goal, but you begin to set that goal, you'll begin to strategize to reach that goal. When I was up in Canada, one of the churches, most of the churches I worked with were smaller ones. But I was asked to work with a church of about 1,200. The pastor and the staff and the congregation were very pleased with the church because they had been growing. And so as we did the consultation with them, I said, that's, 
I'm glad you're growing. Who's coming here? They began to look back over the last two or three years and realized that most of the people who were coming to that church were people who were leaving smaller churches within the denomination to come to this church. After all, they had better youth, they had better music, they had better worship, etc. And we challenged them. And uh, we said last year, how many people came to Jesus? And uh, it was somewhere around 100. Every time somebody would come to Jesus, they would put a uh, red balloon, healing balloon, on the platform. And uh, the idea they would celebrate that that was enough. Somebody that week had met Jesus as their Savior. They said, a vision. I just saw a video a couple weeks ago. They're halfway through the, their year, the way they, they start in the summer or land in the summer. They're halfway through the year. Their vision is 200 conversions for Jesus Christ in 12 months. The pastor said, this is halfway through, he said, by the way, we're at 121 converts now. Uh, whereas last year they had 100. And he said, you will notice that from the time school, everybody went back to school in September to this December, there has never been a Sunday there was no red balloon on the platform. Okay. He's excited. His staff's excited. And by the way, he, he emailed me. I, I sent him and said, hey, great video. Great, great video. Was that me? sent back. He said, by the way, he said, you know, 30 of those are 20 to 30-year-olds, which is the group that most churches are missing because they are focusing on a vision. They have a number. The second number is how many people do you want to touch in the next five years because that gives you more people to influence. See, I find most churches are like Charlie Brown who shoots the arrow on the fence and then goes and paints the target around. <laughs> and we say to churches, no, you need to set some faith visions. That if you do the mission and the Spirit of God shows up, you want to see these many people become brand new disciples. And by the way, nothing gives energy to a church like a consistent stream of people coming to Jesus. In our new cohort, I've been in some places in the United States I didn't know exist. existed. I was in northeast Pennsylvania, and uh, I mean, the town was so small, the head of the mafia, I think, was Czechoslovakian. And, uh, and uh, I got an email from the pastor. She said, Paul, we've been doing a children's ministry for two years, but ever since we've done the consultation, we've been filled in a great commission. She said, I did something I never did before. When all those unchurched kids from the trailer park came in, when we did our Sunday evening, our Friday evening thing, and I told the story of Jesus, I actually asked, how many of you would like to believe in Jesus? And she said, 11 kids trusted in Jesus Christ that night. She said, we have, she said, I don't remember did it before. But it actually took place. So we talk about mission and vision at that point. Now, the second, the next thing we talk to churches about is relationships. And the main thing I want to talk about now is connecting people. You will notice in the slide, under connecting people, you'll see the word Legos. People are like Legos. Now, I want you to think of a Lego. You play with Legos by connecting them. And I want you to think of a Lego that has eight connectors on it. There's a reason for that. Is that the average person in the United States, whether you're at work, at school, in some kind of group, association, at church, 
you will know many more people than that, but you want to have about eight sustained relationships with people. That over a two, three month period of time, you talk to them, you discuss games, you may go hunting together, or you may go to a concert together, or you do some kind of sport. But there's about eight people you want to have some kind of sustained relationship with. Now, when I go to small churches, everybody in that church has a full Lego. They have all the relationships they can handle. Now, by the way, if you're an introvert, you only have two connectors on your leg. If you're an extrovert, you got 15. But the average is about eight. Now, remember we said that new people expect the church to be friendly. I mean, they're not looking, they're not, they're not going through the, well, I used to tell you how old I am, going through the yellow pages, but going through websites looking for friendly churches. They just assume if they got a church, it's going to be friendly. But here's what they are looking for. They're looking for friends. And there is a major difference between being a friendly church and a church where you can make friends. And if they come to your church and they don't know anybody, they don't have any gatekeepers there to help them get connected. And everybody in the church has a full Lego. I don't care how many times you greet them. I don't care how many times you shake their hand. I don't say, you all come back. I don't care how many times you say that. They're going to come two, three times. Now, they won't come every week, but the, I, I hear this all the time. Well, we see people, they, they show up for about two or three months, and then we never see them again. And the reason we never see them again is it's impossible to make friends. And so one of the things that we have to teach churches is how do you help people make friends? It is one of the hardest things to do to work on from a church perspective, but the churches that capture it, figure out how to do it, it is the best mission field a church has. I haven't even thought about this. But if people who are unchurched, de-churched, semi-church, apart from bread, if they come to your church, it is the easiest mission field to reach. They're on your campus. Doesn't cost you anything in terms of them showing up. And that is the mission field most churches ignore. You know, and, and we do all kinds of things to embarrass them. We do all kinds of things sometimes to let them know that we're, we're friendly, but whether they come back or not isn't that important. And so one of the things that we help churches do is to work on connecting new people. So let me give you shorthand version of what we say to churches. We say, if you can get somebody's information, in this day and age, they may come four, five, six hundred before they give you any information. But if they give you information, or you get it somehow, you need to contact them every week. Email, text, phone, Brief, short, it's got to be different. It can't be the same message every time. But every time you contact them, you remind them that there's a meal after church on the third Sunday of the month. You may do this every three months. You may the side of church, you may do it every two months, you may do it every four months, but there's a meal that's just for guests. We call it pizza with the pastor or pasta with the pastor. 
here in California, gluten-free salad for the past two weeks, whatever. <laughs> and you invite them to that. Now, at that meal, around that table, there should only be the pastor and the pastor's spouse, whoever she or he is, should be the pastor's spouse, and all guests. The session shouldn't be there, the deacon shouldn't be there, etc. You're nice people, but you're full Lego people. You can't connect with these people. And here's the agenda for the meal. The rest of you, you should be serving. Is uh, number one, the pastor wants to know about some something, so he goes around, talks to people, asks them networking questions. They want to know something about the pastor and pastor's spouse, etc. Then the pastor should have his or her 10-minute stump speech about vision. That, that elevator speech. I got something. Here's our vision, folks. Here's why we're here. here. Here's what we think God wants. Here's how we want to see our community be changed. And then the pastor and the pastor's spouse spend the rest of the time helping these people meet each other. Because all of them have empty Legos. And we have found that if people can make a friend within a relatively short time of visiting your church, they generally stay. And so it's a matter of working through this process of connecting people, and we help churches do that. So that's one of the things we do in relationships. So, uh, the whole purpose of um, small groups, one of the whole purposes is third places. Uh, uh, basically, this is a sociological term. Uh, our first place is our home. In our home, you are accepted automatically. I mean, we have a statement, if your mother doesn't love you, you're in deep trouble. If you're planning a family reunion, somebody said, are we going to invite crazy Uncle Harry? And worse yet, what if he brings his kids? But you invite them because they're family. So you, when I'm at home, I realize my acceptance is automatic. When you go to work or school, your acceptance is conditional. All you have to do is have a junior high or a teenager to find that out. What group do I get with so I have some friends? Whether they're athletes, whether they're scholars, whether they're computer people, whether they're musicians, whatever. I've got to get, I'm always working to get there. When you go to a new job, you realize that on that new job, I better learn the unwritten rules if I want to be accepted. And if the unwritten rules are work hard for good wages and I don't work hard, I'm not going to get accepted. If the unwritten rules are slough off and I don't slough off and I show people, I'm not going to be accepted. So I am always working on acceptance. Third places are where you are accepted by others and you don't have to earn it. Best illustration of a third place was the television show Cheers. You go someplace where everybody knows your name. Now, they fought with each other. Typical church. They fought with each other. But they accepted, and they were also, by the way, very suspicious of visitors. Okay. And so the whole purpose of groups is to help people make friends. And as those friends expand, get connected with people who will accept them for who they are. And then there's different ideas for groups and meetings. So... One of the things that we teach churches to do of 20, 30, 100, 150, 
is to act differently. So let me, I started off by sharing with you three assumptions. Let me share with you a fourth assumption. It's not in your notes, but a fourth assumption. Churches from zero, church plant starts, there's basically nobody there, but churches from zero to 200 are like apples. Churches from 200, I'm using worship attendance, not membership, worship attendance, 200, to 1,000 are like oranges. Now, by the way, 80% of all congregations in the United States never get past 200. Okay, so most churches are 200 or less. Those are apples. Churches from 200 to 1,000 are oranges. And churches from 1,000 to 30,000 are simply bigger oranges. <laughs> What's the point? The point is this. Small churches are small because they're designed to be small. Large churches are large because they're designed to be large. So when I work with a church of 20, some years ago I was invited to Maine First time I'd ever been to Maine. I'd never been to Maine before. And I realized and was told by Mainers themselves they're the most stubborn people there is in the U.S. They were there before the American Revolution and they'll be there afterwards. So don't tell us to change. That's a four-letter word. And I was invited to up in the middle of Maine, a little town of about 15,000, to come work with this church that on a good Sunday had 23 people in an auditorium that was over that year they were celebrating the 200th anniversary of the auditorium that set 300 was kept in pristine condition and was considered a historical landmark so I showed up and on Friday afternoon I talked to the pastor who had just gotten out of seminary and was so naive I didn't know he shouldn't have gone there <laughs> they had a volunteer secretary in her 80s so we hollered at each other for about a half an hour so I could get some information <laughs> So Friday night, I do a focus group. Well, when you only have 23 people, that is a focus group. <laughs> so we had all 23 people there for the focus group. On Saturday, I worked with the leaders, and we had all 23 leaders. <laughs> and as I worked with them, I sensed that once again, this group of people wanted to see God do something different in their church to reach this community. So I said... Because I, you know, I said to myself, and in fact, I actually said to him, you got to change. And as soon as I said, you got to change, there was this older guy who says, well, that's the first change. <laughs> I said, I'll take the first change, but I want to ask you a question. I knew the answer, but I said, I'm going to ask you a question. I said, where do you sit on Sunday morning? <laughs> well, you know the answer. All 23 people said scattered across the back of a 300-seat <laughs> You could have shot a machine gun through there and missed them all. <laughs> I said, tomorrow morning when I get up to preach, I'd like to see all of you in the first eight pews. I said, we'll give you maps. <laughs> we'll dust them off. I got up to preach next morning. Everybody sit in the first eight pews. I mean, I really didn't think they would. It blew me away. So I said, I got up to preach. I said, thank you. I did this thing with I 
So I'm sorry, we're not expecting the best of you. Thank you. But I said, if you're just here this morning for me, uh, and you're going back to, you know, Norm's stool next week, uh, doesn't matter. But if you stay here, and a visitor gets lost, and finds your church by accident, and walks in, at least they don't have to walk past all 23 of you and look like a big red <laughs> They can walk in and say, there may not be many people here, but at least they're interested enough to be up front. Four years went by, I didn't hear a word. I'm in Kansas City, Missouri for a conference, and I see the denominational person. I said, what happened to your church in Maine? He said, oh, Paul. He said, they're averaging 125. They got kids coming. They got children. They've seen six people come to Jesus this year. I said, would you quick email that pastor and tell him Rick Warren cannot compete with those percentages? <laughs> but we did that by teaching them to act like a church of a thousand. We never taught churches of 50 how to be churches of 100. And churches of 100 how to be a church of 200. Churches of 200 have to be a church of 400. We said, we're going to teach you how to be an orange. Okay. And one of the things of being an orange is Sunday morning has to be done differently. I go into many small churches, and because most small churches don't have other vehicles for fellowship, they've got to have it on Sunday morning. This is where we share prayer requests. This is where we share testimonies. Even some of our churches, they would even call out the hymn they wanted to sing. Okay. We said, no, 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 no. Do you realize how that scares guests? We said, well, we need, yeah, you need fellowship, but you don't do it on Sunday morning. So Sunday morning, is, is, I mean, it's basically, I, I spent 20 years here in Denver, and they finally won some Super Bowl, so I can talk about it. <laughs> You know, but you put 76,000 fans in whatever the stadium is up there now, most of whom don't know each other, which if you've met Bronco fans is a blessing. <laughs> but for three and a half hours, you can get them to cheer together, you can get them to be quiet together, you can get them to stomp their feet together. Why? Because they have a common mission and vision. And the mission is to do everything possible to help the Broncos defeat the godless Oakland Raiders. Okay? <laughs> And the vision is to see the team, their team walk off the field victorious while the Raiders are carried off in stretchers. Okay. And you run Sunday morning for the vision of God and for his vision for the church and what God wants to accomplish through the community. And whether you're singing, whether you're praying, whether you're preaching, everything is about vision. It's not about my needs for my fellowship. And so that's what we're talking about in terms of group meetings. Now, then the next to last slide, which is ministries. There's two things here. Let me, let me talk about the first one. Not on your list. The first one's a staff led. I want to come back to staff led in a minute. The first one is everybody comes to the church as a consumer. Even unbelievers come to church as a consumer. Will you help my marriage? Will you help me with my kids? Will you help us deal with our teenagers on drugs? Will you help us? 
The problem is the worst consumers are us who've been there, and we're the most finicky. Are you going to do the music I like? Are you going to preach the way I want? Are you going to do the worship? You know, are you going to do this for our teenagers? Are you going to do this? And by the way, if you don't do it, here's what we use. We will shop for another church because we're consumers at that point. Now, Jesus always started where consumers are. What do you got? Well, he started. We always start with people who are not consumers. We always start with people who are. When he got the well, he said, well, well, "Can you give me something to drink?" And that started the conversation. When Nicodemus said, "Let's talk theology," started the conversation. Missionaries always start with where people are. So we have to realize that we must start with consumers. Only our job is to convert consumers into disciples. And what I mean by disciple is not only do they know Jesus Christ, but they're willing to give up their consumer demands to see more people become disciples. And so we talk to the church about the 8 to 10 basic consumer demands people expect. That's the only thing people expect to do. I don't care if you're Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever. There's only certain things that people expect the church will do. But let me tell you what the three, the top three are. Top three. Number one is Sunday morning, the Sunday morning worship experience. That needs to be as much of top quality as it can possibly be. The way you sing, how you sing, are you guest friendly on Sunday morning? Do you, are you, you know, uh, I've been in churches, even eco churches, where you know the kids are in the service and the pastor tells the children's story, the kids come down. And then they say, uh, you're dismissed. Now, we were in one eagle church. The, the children were dismissed. They, they said there was there was some big, ugly-looking lamb hanging from the ceiling. Some teenager, I think, had made in the past. But go meet under the lamb. And all the kids would run out. And downstairs, and you need a trail of breadcrumbs to find them. If you were a guest and your kid came up and your child ran out, go with the kids. You had to go pick up your child after the service. Nobody would bring them to you. And I said to him, what happens if I'm a guest? We show up 10 minutes late, my kid is gone, and I don't know where my child is. No, we, we don't think through our service. What's it like for guests? So what happens on Sunday morning worship is crucial. The second ministry that needs the investment of our time and our energy and our money is the connection of guests. That's how churches grow in part. And you want guests to keep coming back because if they don't know Jesus, you want them to meet Jesus. You want them to get to know Jesus. So connecting with guests is number two. But number three, it's children. It used to be youth, but it no longer is. It's children. We were working with a church in upper New York State about 20 miles from the Canadian border. The church had been there since the 1840s. In fact, it had been built in part because of that particular denomination as a uh, place, part of the Underground Railroad, helping the slaves escape into Canada. The current buildings that the church meets in today were all built in the 1800s. So all of you were trustees, you can just imagine that nightmare. It's down to 20 people. 
The town is gone. There used to be a town. All that's left there are two broken down barns and trees. There's nothing else there but the church. The average age of the congregation of these 20 people was 75. No children. No teenagers. Well, they had one, two children because the pastor who came had two children. There were no children there. And we actually met to do the weekend of consultation to determine whether the church would live or die. That was what we were there for. Now, in the United States, it is easier to kill a human and get away with it than it is a church. Okay. All you need is an L.A. jury. It doesn't matter if you're O.J. or Robert Blake, you can get off. Okay. So these people, halfway through, we said, we don't want to die. He said, you want to keep going? And he said, yeah. He said, well, you realize if you don't change, you are going to die. And he said, we understand that. So he said, we're going to give you one prescription and three implications. So here was the prescription. Whenever there is a choice between what is best for you and what is best for the community, you will always choose in behalf of the community. These people said, fine, we'll do that. He said, let's see. The auditorium held about 80 people. They're, they really didn't have a foyer. They really had a, an extended cloakroom because it's up near Canada. It's cold and place you hung your coats and boots and you just kind of went right into the worship center. We said, you know, when young people walk into church today, younger people, you know, people in their 30s and 40s, uh, they like a cup in one hand and something to eat in the other. Now, this church, like many churches, had forgotten that the building's not the church. In this church, the building was the Holy of Holies. They weren't sure they even wanted to have communion because somebody might spill something. I reminded them that when Jesus died, the veil got rent in half. You can take coffee in now. It's okay. <laughs> we said, uh, we said you got to put a coffee bar. They said, well, there's no room in the foyer or the, the cloakroom. We said, that's right. So we said, what's left? These older people, literally, in their worship center, down the wall, put a coffee bar. Jerry Church, I know now we can actually sit in church and smell the coffee. <laughs> Second thing, they had a fellowship hall. There's a little alley behind the building at the fellowship hall. And of course, this church has been around since the 1840s, so they had policies after policies after policies. One of the policies was you couldn't use the fellowship hall unless you were a member. Well, then we had 12 members. And most of them were in their 80s. And a whole year go by, the fellowship hall would never get used. So one Sunday morning they voted, because that's the way they did it in their denomination, that any civic group in the community, in the county, that wanted to use a fellowship hall could use it for free. Now, if you ever live in small towns, you'll understand how this happens. That afternoon, the head of the county government called the pastor and said, I heard your congregation voted this morning to join the community. <laughs> there was a McDonald's about 20-some, 30 miles away. Renovating. They went to McDonald's and said, You have something we want. We don't have a lot of money. We need to buy it from you. They bought it. So today, if you walk into church, say you're a couple with a five year old, six year old, in this cloakroom, there's a little narrow desk with a great big yellow sign that says, Register your child, because this day and age, safety is primary for young families. So I've been in little churches. Well, everybody knows our kids, yeah, but they don't know. Guests don't know that. 
So you rescue your child. And you rescue your child, you say, now, where's the child go? You say, you see that big round hole? That's the slide to the basement. That's what they bought from McDonald's. And the kids go down the slide. In one year, in the middle of nowhere, this church of 20 was averaging over 70. Now, families were coming. Kids were coming. They had seen 12 people come to Jesus because the church was known in the county as the church with the slide. And if children want to go, their parents will get them there. And so what I say to churches, and you've seen it happen in Western Pennsylvania, your children's ministry must be given priority, must be so exciting that when kids go to school, they talk about it. Because if they talk about it, other kids are going to want to come. And guess who's going to get them there? The parents. And because they're helicopter parents, they'll hover in church while their kids are going. Worship Connection and children's ministry is crucial. I mentioned this church in Western Pennsylvania is now involved with the school. The pastor's been going out praying regularly with faculty, doing all kinds of things. And uh, he'd been there about six months. And they said, um, by the way, we've got a, I think she was like a fourth or fifth grader. We've got a discipline there. She, she, she was, she's a good student, but all of a sudden all she does is talk in school. Would you like to come sit in on the discipline? He said, yeah, come in. So he goes in, there's a girl, and she goes, I pastored, etc. The reason they were disciplined, they found out she was telling all the kids every day about what was happening in Sunday school. And the kids are coming. So the pastor's going to let her talk. <laughs> now, staff led. The reason why churches like committees, it's a way to hold power without ever being held accountable. And so we said to our churches, you've got to get rid of all your committees. And even though our churches often were 40, 50, 60 people, they became staff-led churches. Now, our staff were all volunteers. They weren't paid to think. But they were given responsibility. They were given authority. But they also knew they were going to be held accountable. And that's part of being an orange, is moving to a staff-led church. It's also a way that allows you to fire volunteers. Okay. And so we said we've got to start where people are. And I say to small churches, focus on worship, focus on connection, and focus on children. And then become staff-led. The last piece, the last slide, is the structure. And uh, our churches were congregational. I reminded them that every time a large group in Scripture makes a decision, it's always the wrong one. So congregational government doesn't work. But for the most part, neither does elder government. And let me tell you why. By the way, our church has functioned as elders because the board most time made the decision was delegated authority. Our boards, like most church boards, did not read 1 Peter 5, which says that the elders do not work for the congregation. They work for the chief shepherd. 
not Parliament. It is not Congress, which is really doing well. <laughs> but it's to work for the Chief Shepherd. And so we have a model of governance which, governance, which now ECO has adopted at the Synod level. Uh, Dana is writing a whole thing for congregations, and so we talk about the whole issue of structure. And so what our goal is when we leave a church is to have them be very clear about what the mission is and the vision. We talk about how do you connect people. We talk about how do you do worship. We talk about structure. And in the process, we talk about how to use all of that to begin to reach people for Jesus Christ. Because it's not about us, but it's about who God called us to reach. So, I have almost 5.15, and we're, I'm done. And uh, I'll hang around if anyone has any questions you want to ask, but let me close in a word of prayer, and then we'll be Our gracious God, I want to...